Before we go into the podcast, I want to just talk about a business that I've set up with my friend George. Uh, it is called the Podcast Introduction Group. So if you want to join and be able to be featured on 24 to 48 pods, podcasts to be able to reach an amazing audience, this is the place you need to go to. Podcast being a guest on podcasts is automatically establishing you as an authority and is able to build your personal and professional brand. We handpick of a bank of podcasters that we have to be able to grow your business and brand. We do 100% of everything that needs to be done by my team. You do not need to lift a finger. You are able to expose yourself to new and relevant markets by going on other people's podcasts. You also are able to create brand loyalty. People will love listening to you and coming back to your products or services and it's able to increase your revenue so if you want to be able to get involved you can sign up quickly registered with a with an account manager there's an onboarding call where we target the podcasts that you want to be on the type that you want whether it's entrepreneurship business health fitness whatever it is we then match you to those podcasts and you can start your journey We have regular catch-ups with our account managers and Google ranks you when people search for you. So when people are searching for you, you're able to see your podcast at the top of the list. So if you are interested in being a podcast guest on multiple podcasts, we are the place to go. If you go to podcastintroduction.com and go and register your details, we will have uh, a quick call with you. Uh, match your your podcast that you want to be on and we can then start this process asap thank you so much for your time i appreciate it back onto the podcast then this is the absolute business mindset podcast created and hosted by mark hayward this podcast will interview entrepreneurs business owners and people in their careers We will delve into their journey to success, key life milestones, and go deep into their area of expertise. Get ready to learn from others' successes and failures. Today, we have Joseph O'Connor, who is an author and executive coach. Hello, Joseph. How are you? Hi, Mark. I'm great. Thanks. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today. So we're going to go through your uh, sort of your career and talk through some of your experience and your expertise. Uh, But as always, we start with your education. Um, And the first thing that I saw was that you had a degree in anthropology. Why did you choose that as as a starting degree? (laughs) Uh, Well, um, to be honest, I got into university to study physiology. Okay, uh, but after about two or three weeks, um, the chemistry and the physics were getting a little bit beyond me. So then, uh, being in the you know in the science faculty, mm. uh, I thought, well, I like university. I want to stay. I want to get a degree. What what is there? What can I do? Mm. And anthropology was uh, in that university, London University. It was a science, so it was included in the science. So uh, it was it was very interesting because it's uh, it's about people and how they live their politics their religion and their their economics um it was really fascinating it gave you a wide variety of sort of skills and knowledge uh, i assume it it gave me a wide variety of knowledge i'm not sure about skills <laughs> except insofar as as to to open my mind up as to as to how many different ways that human beings can live on this planet 
Yeah, yeah. That sounds fascinating. Um, so moving on from anthropology, and the other thing that, that was glaringly obvious uh, when I was doing research was um, that you're a musician. Oh, yes. And you spent a time at the Royal Academy of Music as well. Yes. Yeah, so, well, I, I did a um, teacher's uh, LRAM. But, yeah, when I, when I came out of college, I, I, I took a job for a couple of years, but it wasn't really anything I wanted to pursue. Um, and I was a, a pretty good classical guitarist at that time because I'd started from the age of 11. So I started to be a, a professional performer and teacher of the classical guitar. And I did that for many years. Because there seems to be, when I was doing the research, there seems to be a bit of a gap in the 1990s. <laughs> and I wondered if it was music that you were pursuing or was there other other things that you were doing? No, the way it worked was um, uh, I did a lot of, I, 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 was a, I was a musician, I was a performer, I was a, a teacher as well. And in, in, as part of that, a couple of things that I kept stumbling over, which were very interesting for me, because I was always interested in the psychology of it, was, uh, first of all, the performance aspect, you know, uh, how people can be very good skilled, but yet when they get in front of a, other people or some kind of stressful situation or they feel they're being judged, yeah. then they don't do as well as they can do. Oh. And I, I used to, you know, I had some very good players, some concert players uh, that I was teaching. And what I used to do is I used to um, get them sit down, say, you know, take out your guitar, practice, I'll just get a, get us a cup of coffee or something. Mm. And I would listen at the door. And that was the only way I knew how good they were. Because right. when I came back in, the, you know, the judgment, the teacher, the situation, the trying to prove something, um, they didn't play anywhere near as well. And I knew they could. And I also knew that their expertise had not suddenly disappeared in the 10 seconds it took for me to come into the room. Yeah. So there was clearly something else going on. And then, of course, we were immediately into into coaching because it doesn't matter whether you're performing music or uh, arts or giving a sales presentation or a meeting. If it's important uh, and you need to be your best, then, you know, we need to know what's going on. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and a lot of the last sort of 20 years, there seems to be the theme of coaching and different types of coaching that you've been involved in. Mm. Um, why coaching you've you've kind of hinted at it that you you wanted to help people and sort of enable them to be able to perform i say perform but you know what i mean present and present oh. themselves and and um what was what was your sort of what why was coaching so appealing to you well i i count myself very fortunate to to have a career in music because i think um music is wonderful anyway and it does put you at a very sharp point in terms of performance so there you are on stage with a, a piece of wood and, and six strings strung across it mm. that's uh, usually playing classical music which has one right note at any time and there'll be people who know that so you know it's not jazz or improvisation mm. uh, so it there's a performance going on and that comes out of one thing it comes out of is very good technique. So you learn in the guitar technique, in other words, how to move your fingers quickly and easily yeah. so that you don't have to worry about it. Yeah. You learn the skill so you can forget it. Yeah. 
And yeah. then you can use, in this case, the guitar to express that, what you want to express, that, that beauty, whatever it is, that, what's important. You don't want technique getting in your way. So that's one part of a, of a, of a teacher and a trainer. But then, of course, the other part is the part I referred to. Even if you've got really good technique, you've still got to be able to use it. And your, your worst enemy is yourself because you know in all your little self, uh, you know, talking to yourself, exactly what to say to trip yourself up. We, we all know our own weaknesses intimately. Mm. <laughs> um, so it's, it's the, well, you know, what's called the inner game. So I got interested in, in the inner game, Tim, Timothy Galway's great book, which was kind of the start of coaching back in the seventies. Um, and kind of, kind of went on for there. So it, it came quite naturally. Um, I went, uh, I did quite a bit of uh, neurolinguistic programming, NLP. I wrote a number of books on that, of which the first one was learning music and guitar. Um, right. music and NLP. And then I thought that NLP, um, well, coaching is a wonderful application of NLP and many other things. Uh, I'm not I'm not saying NLP is, is coaching. It isn't. There's a lot of things that go into coaching. And coaching has its own methodology, its own um, ideas and how you go about it. But NLP is a pretty good uh, start to that. Yeah. So when I when I heard about well heard about coaching this was uh, well, 1990 middle of the 90s um, it said yeah yes please this seems to be exactly what it's how I can use everything that I know including NLP in order to help a lot of interesting people do what they do well in the best way that they can and so you co-founded and is director of the international coaching community, which trains coaches worldwide yeah. uh, regarding skills and ethics. So what made you then decide to start up your own uh, business and be a co-founder of a, of that, that community? Well, this was, um, I guess around about 2000. And at the time I was living in Sao Paulo in Brazil um, with my wife and partner, Andrea. And we, in certainly in Brazil and around about that time in, in many countries, coaching was not well developed uh, at all in terms of organisations or skills or methodologies. Um, there was a lot of different sorts of things going on, all of which were kind of called coaching because coaching was kind of the new thing. So it's a bit of a Wild West in, in that sense. Um, and we wanted to start something um, that was that had some substance to it, and we chose the name International Coaching Community for uh, those three words were carefully chosen. International because coaching is international. You know, I've coached in in oh twenty thirty countries. Uh, we have over sixty countries representative in the in the ICC. Uh, coaching just goes across cultures and and across geography so it's international um coaching well that's the the obvious one in the middle helping people the best they they can be in, in many ways helping but, them but, but let's before you go any further you say coaching so there are different types of coaches you might have a life coach you might have a business coach you might have a sales and marketing coach what area for the icc does it really embed or or, or does it embed across lots of different areas well, I would say that um, 
rather than describe them as types of coaching, um, you could describe them as the area of that the coaching skills applies to. Okay. So coaching skills are, are the, the foundational coaching skills of listening, of, of empathy, of asking questions, um, these sorts of things of, of uh, clarifying the, the goals and the values and yeah. the understanding of the client. These can be applied in any area. So for the ICC, we started with that. We started with your, your foundational coaching skills that you can then apply in any area. And then we uh, did started some other courses as well, particularly around team coaching, executive coaching. So that's that's how that's how that started. But I do want to say something about community because yeah. community is an important word. It's a, it's a word for a group of people who are who want to be together, who are bound together by values, and that was always very important for us in terms not only of uh, competence and expertise in coaching, but yeah. also the sincerity, the ethics, the the values. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I appreciate that, and you've. It says when I was doing the research, it says you've trained eight thousand coaches. I'm assuming that number's probably increased, does it? Well, the ICC has certified, uh, I think, about sixteen thousand at the moment. Right. I don't know if I personally trained eight thousand of those. <laughs> I, I doubt it. <laughs> these these things get exaggerated in the telling, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. I don't uh, know, but I certainly spent some some time, and I've I've, I've trained many coaches in many countries. Right. And um, and then executive coach at Lambert UK. Um, I'm seeing a trend here. You getting involved, either starting these businesses or or joining these organisations to to help a variety of different coaches. Is, is that what happened at Lambert? Well, Lambert is um, it's it's our company. Uh, that does uh, training and, and coaching and consultancy in, in various ways. But the the theme you describe, uh, I can identify with because I like, I like to, I like to do what I like to do. <laughs> so I, I love to do coaching and training and writing too. Uh, so what, what I do is I look for the gaps. I look for the gap in, in, it can be in the market, but the, the gap in the knowledge. So, uh, at, you know, in 2000, there was a lot going on, but coaching was definitely on the up and it was an important gap that needed needed something there. Mm. Um, more recently, in coaching, neuroscience is a gap. There's not a lot of uh, application and knowledge of the incredible advances in neuroscience and our knowledge of the brain that's come in. Uh now that's increasing, but um, you know it, it's important. So that interested me. So I'm I'm very interested in in many things, and then I like to kind of go into them, try to integrate them, and and then make an offering of them in some way. Because we're go- we're going to go into the brain and, and the importance of the brain when we get into the expertise section. But it's, it's interesting you you said so. You're the director of neuroscience coaching center. Mm-hmm. The 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 application of neuroscience in coaching, as you said, is is something that's not not very well developed. Right. We've got lots of people who are neuroscientists that are doing MRIs and and sort of start studying the brain and the the activity of the brain and where in the brain that things are doing. It. How did you 
not, not how did you come up with that, but what, what was your trigger to say, did you start reading about neuroscience and then see an application to coaching? How, how did you make that fuse, fusion between the two different areas? We'll be back after a quick break. If you want tips and strategies on how to start, grow, and monetize your business online, check out the Digital Revolution podcast with Eli Adams. We interview digital experts from around the world that share their personal stories. They talk about what they're currently working on and where they see the future going. But most importantly, they share tactics in their specific area of expertise with the hope of helping you improve your digital presence online. You can listen to the Digital Revolution podcast on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, iHeartRadio, or simply click on the link in the show notes below. Um, well, originally, um, I got interested because I did a, a, a degree in, in kind of behavioral, I don't know what you would call it, uh, deception detection, um, which was extremely interesting. Uh, and a lot of that was to do with how the brain works and, and the neuroscience of that. So I got very interested in that. And then, you know, being a coach, I saw, well, you know, there, there's a lot of stuff here about how the brain works and, and it's growing all the time. They need to do something about this. So I actually went to, um, I went to New York and I had a series of brain scans, not because I was ill, but because I was interested, you know, start with yourself yeah. uh, and see where it takes you. Um, and I thought it was fascinating, and I did learn a lot. Uh, it clarified for me many things about how I think and, and how I act from that. But at the same time, of course, there is a divide between the domain of the brain, which is made of matter, and, you know, you don't coach a brain literally. Mm. Um, but at the same time, the brain works in certain ways, which we're discovering, that are not always what we think or would like them to be, and we need to um, take that into account. And knowing uh, some neuroscience research and the models that they have can very much help us as coaches uh, to refine the models that we have. That's fascinating. So let's so, move on. Uh, sorry, just want to say a couple of things, because the, the danger in neuroscience, which I've desperately tried to avoid as, as Scylla and Charybdis, is first of all, neuroscience as learning Latin names of all the brain parts. That doesn't make you a better coach. You know, it can be interesting, but, but yeah. it doesn't. And then the other thing, the other uh, extreme is a lot of uh, very general sorts of claims about uh, left brain and right brain people. Right. Uh, where you take the science and, and then you generalize it out of existence in order to to try to do something. And that's a danger as well. So I've tried to make the, the path between the two in terms of using neuroscience. And, and the, the subtitle of the book was Practical Applications of Neuroscience to Coaching. Right. And, and I suppose as a layman myself, it's quite difficult when you're talking about very complicated things like neuroscience. And I'm assuming the reason why uh, we get that simplification of left brain and right brain is because for people like me, keeping it simple that we can understand those those areas. How how have you done that? And uh, your your latest book, nineteen books you've written, which is amazing. Your latest book, Coaching the Brain. How have you done that? How have you tra 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 traversed between writing a meaningful? detailed book but equally making it accessible for uh, for people to read as well that's magic 
<laughs> That's just magic. I go into the pentangle in the garden and and, uh, and, and wave the magic wand. Um, it's something I, I, I try to do. I think that um, it's as a writer, it's really important that uh, if you've got something important to communicate and you believe in it, then it's uh, your responsibility, as it were, to take the hard work out of the research so that the reader doesn't have to go through the same sort of battles. So I write about what I'm interested in and what I want to learn about. I don't write from the from being, you know, an authority on it. I'm not. Um, I'm a learner. And in learning, I think that I'm able to, to um, iron out some of the difficulties that people meet when they come across this stuff mm. and then hopefully put it down in a clear way so that they can take it and use it. So you're not so so you wouldn't say you're an authority on neuroscience and coaching. <laughs> I, I I'm pushing you a little bit on this because okay. I, I I find it absolutely fascinating that you're saying like you write books that you're interested in, you're not the authority on the area. That's well, that's quite yeah. okay. So let's let's put it this way. Authority I'm an author, okay? So I, I write. That's one word. Um author is also uh, has a meaning around creator. You know, right. you're the author of your experience. You create it out of, of various things. You create books out of, of various things. That's the meaning of the author. Now, when you start to get an authority, that's when people start to look up to you for answers mm. because you have some expertise in that area. Mm. So that's fine. Um, I'm not going to claim that I have all the answers and I'm perfectly, I'm very comfortable in saying I don't know and I don't. Um, but I hope that what I've done and what I've studied and, and what I've trained and, and put into writing is helpful and accurate for many people. Absolutely. What's your writing practice? What do you do when you're when you're writing a book? What what's your uh, routine? <laughs> I don't have a routine. Uh, I have a deadline. You know, this book has <laughs> to be finished by this time. So I, I'm not. I'm not well disciplined in that sense. It's not like, you know, two hours a day or a thousand words or every morning or anything like that. A week can go by or more where I don't write anything. And then the next week I could write, you know, two, three chapters. It, a lot depends on, on what's going on. And of course, you know, there's a lot of research to do uh, as well. So you have to let do it, let it settle, see how it integrates and, and then move forward. So it tends to be kind of fits and starts. Right. Okay. Um, Relating back to your coaching and and your expertise in this area, how important do you think emotional intelligence is in business? It's critical, absolutely critical. Um, you know, in, in business, of course, there's a lot of technology, there's a lot of procedures, there's a lot of ideas, but in the end, you're you're dealing, you are a person with emotions and you're dealing with people with emotions. And you can argue all you like and use all the technology all you like, but if the person, if you don't get on with the person, there's going to be a problem. Yeah, that's what that's what happens in companies. The the problems are a lot of them are impersonal. Uh, there are personal, uh, which then generates a lot of other types of problems where things go wrong. So in, in terms of emotional intelligence, um, let me say a couple of things. The 
the original metaphor for thinking and emotions goes back to Plato, where you have a, a chariot and a charioteer and a black horse and a white horse. And a black horse is emotions, and that's always trying to you know, tear you off in the wrong direction. And the white horse is intellect, and it's very going along nicely. You can see which what Plato favoured. But it, and then you're, you're the charioteer, you know, you have to kind of... <laughs> control the horses and but it's not really like that as far as the brain's concerned the whole thing is just a a system a mess a whole togetherness togetherness um there's no thinking without some emotion involved in terms of feeling and meaning and there's no emotion without some kind of thinking involved so they always go together and when we talk about decision making it, it becomes pretty clear that decisions are made primarily by our emotional centers mm. rather taking into account all the cognitive knowledge that comes in but in the end it's emotional so um the emotional intelligence in terms of knowing your emotions being able to manage them being aware of other people's emotions and being able to manage those is really crucial. Do you think that's an area that executives, leaders still struggle with? Because I would, I, if you go back 20 or 30 years, leaders were, the leader has changed a great deal over these last 20 years. 20 oh, years yes. ago, a leader was like a fearless leader at the front, sort of directing where we were going. Now there's lots of nuances and lots of different types of leaders and, and what they prioritise. But do you think emotional intelligence is, is seen by leaders as important still? I hope so. Uh, we've certainly moved a long way away from from the charismatic leader leading the troops from the front, as it were. But I think what's interesting about a, a leader, uh, unless you, you have some definite type of hierarchical authority that other people will obey regardless, is that leaders aren't leaders without followers. You know, <laughs> if someone says, come on, follow me, and nobody does, they're not a leader. Mm. Yeah. So in that sense, you have to provide a vision, you have to communicate, you have to tell a story that makes sense, you have to connect with people in order to be a leader. And then that happens, yeah, apart from the, you know, the obvious hierarchical ones. So I think there's a lot of, uh, I think it's becoming more, well, I think leaders are more and more uh, seeing how important this is. Uh, and it's factoring more and more in, into uh, how they how they think about leadership and how they behave. So, so I'm just going to, this is completely off the cuff and I've not prepared this, but I'm just interested with an example of someone like Elon Musk mm-hmm. as a leader, as a, as a person who's defining technology. Do you think that from your neurological side and from your coaching side, do you think he is the mod like closer to what we now describe as a modern leader? We'll be back after a quick break. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. 
It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. An interesting question. Um, I mean, he, he's worth a lot of money. He's a visionary. He's head of a very large company. Um, and people pay attention to what he says. So you, you have this, uh, you know, the technology aspect, which is, of course, more and more important now. So he's head of one of those really big technology companies. Yeah. Um, he's very wealthy. Um, and he has a vision. So, you know, that's you've got some elements of leadership there. Yeah. Uh, now, I don't I don't know him and, and I, you know, I don't follow him and I don't really know uh, how he is getting on with people is another matter. Uh, and, you know, so I think it's important to remember that leadership is a composite uh, of all sorts of qualities. And if you're really strong in some, you can get away with not having very much in, in others. It'll it'll work. You know, Steve Jobs particularly. Yeah, and that's that's where I was sort of going towards the whole sort of Steve Jobs and yeah. and Elon Musk, who are, as you say, visionary. They're uh, transformative leaders. They are people that do uh, people listen to. But I suppose my sort of angle was that they're sort of like Steve Jobs, for example wasn't a particularly nice person an absolute visionary in technology wasn't a nice person do you think that type of leader is becoming less relevant um than because i'm thinking of it's like people that are participative as leaders they're part of the team they're not just standing at the front There, there does seem to be a more of a shift towards that type of leader so that sort of person that you would shout at their staff is that is that occurring less and less or or is, am i making assumptions here where there probably aren't aren't assumptions to be made uh, i don't know i think it's a really interesting question and quite complicated yeah. um i think that leaders there's still a place for leaders to shout at people but they've got to be very careful who they shout at and what the reason for that yeah yeah uh you know a, a leader who is um Perhaps a leader needs to appeal to many different sorts of people. So a, need, a leader needs to be, in some senses, a chameleon. They need to be very clear about what, where, what they believe and what they are. But they they must be able to deal with very different sorts of people in a way that makes those very different sorts of people feel completely understood mm-hmm. and willing to to move along. So that's one thing. So I'm. I think um, I, I, I really don't know. I think I think there's many different aspects involved, and of course, there's always that um, almost random element of what happens in the market. For example, you take Steve Jobs uh, as an example. So, visionary leader, very successful, wonderful company, you know, fantastic. Now, so Steve Jobs, great leader. Okay, now supposing. Um, Steve Jobs doesn't change. He still has his visions. He still shouts at people. He's still the person he was. But there was some technological breakthrough in another area, and Apple went down and down and down and down and down while he was leader. Mm. Then 
you know, 10 years later, everybody goes, oh, Steve Jobs, not, not such a great leader, you know, he didn't really get anywhere, he kept shouting at people. Mm-hmm. Um, he should have been nicer or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. you, you can plug in any anything into that because we tend to also uh, define leadership by success after the fact. Mm-hmm. And then we take the qualities and um, actions of that person at the time, very much in context, and, and certainly now with technology changing so much and the ability to just turn over companies overnight, um, we, we take people in a context that do certain things, and if they're successful, great leadership, yeah? Mm-hmm. Okay, yes, absolutely, fine. But doesn't guarantee that if you copy what they do, you're going to be a great leader in another context, in another company, yeah. five years later. Yeah. It's going to be different. And equally, so, it's like yeah. history is written by the winners. Like, oh, yes. Because <laughs> the company still exists and is being incredibly successful now, we still eulogise Steve Jobs as an amazing leader. So I, I, I do think that there's there's uh, there's that as well. Yeah. Right, moving on, let's, let's, let's take another tax. So how is your brain a prediction machine? Well, the it's... It seems like what what we need um, we need uh, some kind of stability in life, right? We a random world would would be impossible, and we know that when uh, people have, feel they have no control over anything that's going on, they get highly stressed and sometimes mentally ill. So it's very important that we have some kind of stability and we can predict what's going to happen. And this is basically what the brain does. So we have experience. Um, I like to say the brain is a is an organ for converting experience into nerve cells. <laughs> and then we, we have this experience and we learn from that. And what we learn is that if I do this, this happens. Uh, you know, if I jump out the window, I'll fall a long way and hurt myself in the extreme example. If I talk to someone like this, then this will happen. If I do this, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So it's if then, if then, if then. Mm-hmm. And we test and we get a basis of experience that goes, yeah, this seems to work. And that's the prediction in the sense. I predict that uh, if I talk like this to to somebody, um, then they will be more willing to to follow what I say. Now, that may not happen, in which case we have to update our predictions and we always happen to update our predictions. So you talk to someone or you give a class or you give a coaching session or a meeting or whatever it is in the way that you predict is going to be successful because it has in the past Mm. and it isn't. Now, then you go, uh, okay, what went wrong? (laughs) Well, nothing really went wrong. Your prediction was based on what you knew and you did the best that you could um, and uh, you need to think, okay, so what was different about this? What, what, how do I need to update my prediction about how I approach a similar meeting next time? So this is, a, this is then about updating our learning all the time. So that's what the brain is doing. It's making those type of predictions. So what's more powerful with this prediction machine that's at the top of my head, experience or coaching? Well, you can't avoid experience. <laughs> no, but what I'm, what I'm, so, so this, I hear from sort of thought leaders and sort of like inspirational uh, uh, sort of coaches and, and, and businessmen. They say, learn from my mistakes. Oh, okay. And you don't need to go through the the, the struggles I did. But what is actually more powerful for the individual going through those times of struggle? 
or actually having a coach that can sort of circumvent those struggles and get you to the place potentially faster? Well, there's a, there's a place for both. Um, I don't know that a coach will, will magically ease the way forward so that you never have conflicts or struggles. Um, you do need the experience, you know, you've got to go and, and do your, your hours, you know, just like I've got, had to play the guitar for a number of hours. Uh, the teacher channeled uh, and showed me best practice and, and helped me from a, a place of having done that, made mistakes and, and could help me. But I still had to do it. Hmm. Um, so experience, absolutely. But it's not just any old experience. You know, the old saying that uh, some people have the same year's experience for 20 years you know and they actually only have one year experience uh and someone else you know they they have a different experience over 20 years so you've got you've got to diversify the experience and it's got to be an experience that you can learn from in other words if it's too easy you don't learn a lot mm. if it's too difficult you don't learn a lot either it's got to be you know just right like goldilocks uh, and one of the things that a coach can help a person with is almost a designing experience uh, in that Goldilocks way. How do you, how, how is it for you, the difference between coaching an executive of a large corporate versus an entrepreneur? What different for me coaching them? Yeah, from your coaching perspective, how do you approach them differently? Well, I, I, I wouldn't say I approach them differently. It, uh, of course, I don't treat them the same. Um, and I'll have certain expectations. I won't, I won't be able to completely drop all my expectations about uh, the sorts of issues that they're going to bring up. But at the same time, I, I would hope that I would sit down and there's a, there's a person, there's a human being in front of me, and they want to talk about something that is bugging them, something that isn't working. Mm. Uh, and I'm going to listen and I'm going to help them as best I can. And for the CEO of a, of a big company and an entrepreneur in a small company, those are likely to be different sorts of issues, but many of them are the same, working with teams, you know, work-life balance, uh, making decisions. It's only the content or the size of the, the particular uh, issue it's different it's it's not the dynamic right because they're the same components in all businesses isn't, isn't there whether oh, yeah. you've got yeah, yeah. thousands of people or whether you've got 20 people you still need to do the same things i think that's really important a really important thing to uh to explain but i suppose where i was angling that was entrepreneurs are renowned for being fast-paced agile being able to move from subject to subject not subject to subject, but from thought to thought and different pivot the business change the business you know as an executive you are uh, a little bit slower and a little you, you change i always talk because i worked in corporate for 14 years changing the direction of a large corporate is like changing from a, a like a a, a ship a ship liner it takes a long time to move it where an entrepreneur can literally change their idea on a large proportion of section of their business in an afternoon so with that as as a as a like that as flag to you does that change your answer slightly 
Um, well, yeah, I mean, it's true. You know, the bigger the ship, the the uh, you turn the rudder and you've got to wait for, you know, it's to be 10 miles <laughs> or, or 15 miles before it actually, you, you get any any sense of turn. And it's true, you know, the entrepreneur can change the direction of, of small business in an afternoon, but then they've got to continue in that path. And that can be rather more, more different. Uh, you know, you can, you can make decisions in an afternoon, but then you've got to, you've got to follow it through. It's a bit like, um, my metaphor would be a railway line. So you have a railway line going along and it's track. So a train on that has no choice. It's going to arrive at a certain destination. Yeah. Now, you can have points and the points are going to be a few degrees. So the train can go off that. Now, if it goes off that, it's no longer heading where it was going, but it's only a small amount later, but it's got to keep going and keep going and keep going. The longer time it keeps going on that small angle, the mm. further away from the end point it will be. Yeah. And if it keeps on making those small changes, yeah. it will end up a very long way away. Mm. Now, of course, trains don't, you can't put points at a right angle because the thing just comes off the track. Yeah. So, and I, I think that's a good metaphor for any type of business. So, I think that what's an interesting idea here is leverage. In other words, what is in a complex system like a business, what is the point where you can make the least amount of effort to get the most amount of, of result? That's right. the leverage, a leverage point. And that's what I'm always looking for. And that's what uh, I think always entrepreneurs and, and CEOs are looking for. Mm. Thank you. Um, how do we build resilience? <laughs> well, resilience, um, I guess, is, is the ability to keep taking knocks and not allow it to knock you off course. So um, if you're there's an, <laughs> it's a funny question. Um, let me try and answer it this way. If you can arrange things so that you don't get knocked, you won't need resilience. Right. <laughs> First option. <laughs> um, second option, lots of things going on, and we can't avoid things going wrong, of course. Then you need to build up uh, mental resilience in terms of being able to deal with reframe and manage you know, we're into emotional intelligence again manage your emotions about that and and other people um and physical resilience too because the brain is part of the body you know brains don't work without bodies right. and uh, increasingly we know that things like uh, sleep for example it's really really important that you get enough good quality sleep and if you don't then your decision making your focus your concentration and your ability to think is very can be very badly affected mm. so uh you know the it's it's not like well you know i've got time to rest or sleep or exercise because i've got all these important stuff to do it's like unless you do rest and sleep and exercise you won't be so capable of doing that important stuff it's going to be more difficult it'll take you longer so that's that. That's resilience there, and then, of course, you can get into anti-fragility with uh, Nassim Taleb, which is about using the the 
the things that go wrong to make you stronger. Right. To to be able to um yeah, so when they do go wrong, it does make you stronger. So like, you know, when you exercise a muscle, it stresses the muscle, but then the muscle grows back more strongly and yeah. you can use it better afterwards. And that's a fascinating area. So um, yeah, yeah, if we had a couple of days, then. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Unfortunately, there is a, there is a, with all these things, there, there are a, 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 a closure and we, we come into the end of the interview. Um, Thank you for that answer on resilience, uh, Joseph. Um, so I ask the same six questions to all of my guests. They are quick fire questions. They don't need a quick fire answer. Um, first one is what's the best decision that you made? Ah, impossible. Um, to, okay, to, to, Go, go to live in Brazil to be with Andrea. Um, I was living in London and uh, I moved out there. Lived in Brazil for seven, eight years. Oh, amazing you know, experience. Came back. Where were you in Brazil? São Paulo. Oh, lovely. Yeah. Okay, next question. What's the best piece of advice you've been given? Um, if you <laughs> learn how to say no know your priorities you know the, the that with so many interesting fascinating and wonderful things going on that uh you know the, it's so easy to get right get sucked into them you've got to say no and you've got to say no even to things that you really like yeah absolutely um who's helped you most in your career well if i go back uh, to when I was first learning to uh, train and, um, you know, but be, be like an entrepreneur in business and train and, and uh, coaching. There was a man called David Gaster um, who was a, an NLP trainer and ran a company in, in the UK that was a really, really fascinating and, and interesting and, and great person who, who kind of mentored me um, for, for some time. I, I owe him a lot of gratitude. Awesome. Do you have any regrets? <laughs> regrets? <laughs> I have a few. Um, of course. Uh, I think things don't go the way you like. And then, you know, in the end, who knows? Uh there are some things that I really wanted to happen, didn't happen, regretted. And then, you know, three or four years after, I think, thank God that didn't happen. My God, <laughs> that would have been a disaster. <laughs> so I, I like to hold off on my regrets for a little while. Okay, fair enough. What are you most proud of? Uh, I, I guess the, the answer that comes to me right now is, is my daughter, Amanda, who's 16 and who's doing wonderfully well in everything. Amazing. What does legacy mean to you? It means... Um, it means that after you die, you've, you've left some footprints in the sand. You've left some footprints in the sand. You know, you've, you've walked along the beach, you've left some footprints in the sand, 
uh, and they, they've pointed a way for, for people to follow if they want to and if they find it valuable, knowing that the, the tide is coming in anyway. Awesome. Thank you. And lastly, where can people find you if they want to reach out to you? Um, we talk about website, email address, or what? Yeah, website, email address, whatever you're happy, to, social media, whatever you're happy to, to share with. I'm on LinkedIn, um, Joseph O'Connor Coach. Uh, sorry, I'm, I'm on Facebook, Joseph O'Connor Coach. I'm on LinkedIn, uh, easy to look up. And uh, website to start would be coachingthebrain.com. Lovely. Thank you so much, Joseph. It was an absolute pleasure speaking to you today. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Mark. It's great.